Well, it's good to see you again, and uh, this is Wednesday night, May the 20th, and uh, we're here for our uh, normal, uh, typical time together, and uh, yet we also know that it's an atypical time, and it's not real normal, because uh, things change, and hopefully we'll get back to uh, a more normal type thing, hopefully maybe even a better thing. But until then, we're doing what we can do, and we do it gladly, and we do it with joy, and we do it to the honor of the Lord Jesus, and we also do it to benefit you, to feed your soul, to encourage you. And so I just want to say thank you for taking the time to watch this, because you make this really worthwhile. And uh, if these videos bless you, then be sure and tell other people about them, and uh, do whatever you can to kind of help us spread the word and call attention to uh, truth, because in these times... We really do need to know the truth because Jesus said that it's knowing the truth that sets us free. And in these times when we kind of feel confined, constrained, um, maybe a little bit afraid, uh, we're not real sure who to believe, we're not real sure what to do, it's good to know that there's something that is absolutely true, and that, of course, is the Word of God. We always kind of have a question about politicians. What's their real agenda and what... Uh, spin are they putting on things? We feel the same way about the media many times. And there's so many people and so much information that uh, are, are speaking out like about the coronavirus and things like that. How do you know who to believe? How do you know who's telling you the truth? Because sometimes they don't even know. Have you noticed how much has changed? When we first started this, um, I saw a video of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci saying that the coronavirus was really not that big of a deal. It wasn't going to have that much impact. Then look how things changed as uh, time moved on and as it began to spread. And then we were told, for example, at the beginning, masks will do you no good. Now everybody's supposed to wear a mask. I mean, this, this happens all the time. And so often we find uh, people talking about settled science, and yet it changes so often in so many ways as we uh, get research and as new information becomes available. And occasionally you find out that uh, there's whoever is funding the studies kind of slants everything their direction. And so it can get very, very confusing. And it's not like the old days when you didn't get much information, so you didn't really uh, have that much to choose from. Now it is everywhere. And man, does it ever ever get to be one of those kind of things where you don't know who to believe, you don't know who to listen to. Sometimes I've noticed that it causes people to get into arguments, and uh, neither person arguing really knows anything, but they're arguing from their point of view, or their favorite news commentator, or political party, or something like that. And so we as believers have to rise above the fray. We as believers have to understand that everything in this world is touched by sin, isn't it? We live in a fallen world, in a fallen society. And so whatever we do, even at its very best, it's touched by sin. And this is why uh, we go to the Word of God, because the Word of God is, the psalmist tells us, it's pure and it's perfect. It converts the soul, it enlightens the mind. The Word of God gives life. Jesus said the Word of God will sanctify us, it makes us holy, uh, all kinds of things that we get from the Word of God. But even then, we have to be careful. Why do we have to be careful? Because sinners like me are teaching the Word of God. 
sinners like you are listening to a sinner teaching the Word of God. And uh, hey, folks, that's not necessarily a good thing. And that's why I have never, in the years that I've been here, I've never asked you simply to believe me, but I've asked you to study the Word for yourself, to check it out for yourself. And we're growing and learning, and I think about being here for, what, 24 years? Um, I'm not sure I would want anybody to go back and listen to some of the early tapes and teaching. I think uh, for the most part it would be the same, but sometimes viewpoints change and understanding changes and there are probably some things I was dogmatic on back in those early years. I'm not quite as dogmatic on now. There were some things back then that I didn't understand. And I do have a better understanding of them now. Because we're learning and we're growing. And hopefully you are too. And so as we look in the Word of God and we look in Psalm 78, we have been seeing this picture of the history of Israel according to Asaph. And as Asaph is writing this, he's writing this out of a concern that there's a new generation of Jews coming up that don't really know their history. Does that sound familiar? And it's kind of like our culture, and we have people that don't understand our own history, or they misinterpret it, or uh, they don't know enough of it to really know how to act or how to think. That's always uh, a challenge for us, isn't it? Even in your own family, it's that way. And so Asaph is telling these, this generation of Jews that would have been the older generation what they are to tell the children. And we go on down through this psalm and we've been seeing this. This is encouraging us to invest in the new generation because we really can't complain a whole lot unless we have done something to really uh, pour into their lives. It's the 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 thing where Paul tells Timothy to take the things he has learned and pass them on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's supposed to be an ongoing thing where each generation teaches the next, who teaches the next, who teaches the next, until, of course, the Lord Jesus comes, and we don't need that anymore. So as we are thinking about these things, have you noticed that God is faithful and that God disciplines His children, gets their attention, uh, corrects them. Sometimes it's severe. And the people of God are mainly unfaithful, aren't they? Whether you find them coming out of Egypt and being in the wilderness, you would think if there was any time when Israel would have been just ecstatic about God and faithful to Him, it would have been coming out of Egypt, out of 400 years of slavery. And yet what do we find? It doesn't take very long that they are unfaithful and they're building a golden calf and bowing down to it and saying, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? And over and over and over, even to the point where the God that brought them out of Egypt with his strong and mighty hand, that God, that same God, apparently cannot be trusted when they get to Kadesh Barnea to cross the river. The same God that could deliver them from Pharaoh, get them through the Red Sea, provide food for them and water for them while they're in the desert, just, well, we're not really sure he can pull it off. I mean, those people are like giants, and those cities have big walls around them. Who are we? And you find that Israel would have a lack of faith, and a lot of that was because they compared themselves to their enemies instead of comparing their enemies to God. 
And so we look at this and we realize that we're much the same way. And there would be times when God would move and when God would speak and God would do something miraculous. And what would they do? Oh, they would get excited about it. But you remember we read those phrases in there that they flattered him with their lips. They said the right things, but they didn't really believe or grasp them. And they drifted into unfaithfulness so easily. Oh man, I see myself in that. So often, so many times when I think I've got it all together and this is going to be that one cataclysmic event that is going to change everything, nothing will ever be the same again. And then I find myself drifting back into the same old things. It could be that during this time of, of quarantine, maybe you've taken some steps forward. But if you're not careful, you'll do like the people of God have always done. You'll take three steps forward and two steps back. Well, at least that's still, the math works out on that. You're still making progress, but not in the way maybe you expected to or thought you would. And we get discouraged with ourselves sometimes. And that discouragement and that frustration sometimes carries itself over into the way that we treat other people, especially those who were coming up behind us. It's always been interesting to me to see that now that I'm entering into my uh, 60s, that I watch us and I watch people my age and they can be a little younger, a little older, but all of us kind of have a little bit of skepticism toward the younger generation, don't we? I mean, you know, I've, I've seen things on Facebook like how to frustrate a whole generation and it said write in cursive and make all the cars a stick shift. Well, are we superior to them because maybe we can write and read cursive? Are we better than them because we learn to drive a car that uh, had a standard transmission in it when they can't? Are we better because we had to do without some things that maybe our parents couldn't afford or maybe some things that hadn't even been invented yet? My dad was uh, talking to me one time and he said, you know all those stories I told you about walking to school five miles and having to walk in the snow and all of that? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you know, I need to apologize to you because I kind of gave you the impression that I was a better person than you because I did that. And he said, and the truth is, I didn't have a choice. He goes, it wasn't that I was noble and I just said, no, I would rather walk in the bad weather. I have character and all of that. He goes, truth is, I didn't have a choice. There wasn't a school bus. We didn't have any way to get to the school other than to walk. And he goes, and I suppose if there had been a big yellow school bus that had pulled up there that could take me to school, he goes, I would have been on it in a heartbeat. And I think sometimes we take the way we were raised where there were no choices, we take the way we were raised as though we are somehow morally uh, superior to those who are coming up behind us because they've had it much easier. Well, stop and think, folks. Those of you who are my age, that's what the generation before us said about us, isn't it? I had a relatively easy childhood, even though there were some difficulties, but I wasn't facing war. I wasn't being raised in the Great Depression. I had, didn't have to live on a farm and try to do chores and all of those type of things, and most of us didn't either. And so we grew up watching the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family and riding our bikes and having a great childhood and having plenty to eat and good clothes to wear and educated well. And uh, we tend to think that somehow that is a feather in our cap as though we achieved it. And we didn't. It was given to us by a previous generation.
And if you go back to the generation before that, our great-grandparents, they probably had questions about our parents, and our parents had questions about us, and we have questions. You see where I'm going with all of this? And we forget sometimes that God is the God who is in control of this. He's the God of all generations, and He knows how to reach this generation and how to teach them and what they have to go through in order to be the people that God wants them to be. In other words, we need to be faithful to do what we're supposed to do, what God has commanded us as an older generation, setting a good example, telling our children and our grandchildren of the things that God has done and showing them the faithfulness of God and telling them about the consequences of sin, all these things we see in Psalm 78. And we do that so that they can be prepared to be launched like arrows into their generation. Okay, all of that being said, to get to the verses we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different slant. This is prayer meeting night, and I'm going to ask you to join me in praying for some things that these verses in Psalm 78 would uh, teach us and move us and motivate us to pray. So I've entitled this message, Four Things I Want My Children to Experience. And the reason that I've done this is because I think about these things that are so vitally important, and I think about how much our children have and uh, what they've experienced of what we want to pour into their lives that are really going to be inconsequential in times to come. Uh, I want something in my children and in my grandchildren's lives that's going to last and something that's going to be foundational for them and so we take these verses and we read them and we turn them kind of into a uh, points of prayer. So here's what it says, Psalm 78, 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. And he beat back his enemies and he put them to a perpetual reproach. And moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was Joseph's son. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And so this psalm obviously is written after the time of David because it mentions David and looks back on that and talks about uh, while David was obviously not a perfect person, and yet the overall, um, I guess, description of his life would be that he was a good king, that he was a good ruler. In fact, from this point on in the scripture, the people of God always look back to the time of David. In fact, even God himself talks about David more than he does any of the other kings of Israel. And so that was the overall thing that he had in his life. It was a a good time, in other words, when David was the king. Now you'll notice here that as God 
is doing all of these things. There are some strange things. The very first verse we read is a, a strange thing, isn't it? It's a simile. And uh, it is telling us that then the Lord awoke. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Bible says that God doesn't sleep or slumber. And yet this is what it says here. But remember, it has the word like, like a mighty man, like a mighty man, like a valiant soldier who has been at war, and maybe he's had a little bit of an R&R, &R, and maybe before he goes to sleep, um, he has a glass of wine, and it settles him down, and he goes to sleep, and then the trumpet sounds, and there's an attack, and he jumps up out of his sleep like a mighty man with a shout, a warrior, ready to go to battle. This is what the picture is. Now, the first thing that came to my mind is I want my children and I want my grandchildren to see the Lord working in a visible way. Now, the reason that I said it like that is because we know that God doesn't sleep and we know that he hadn't taken, you know, some type of a sedative and he's just off somewhere, uh, you know, in a daze, unaware of what's going on. Uh, God is an all-knowing God. He's an ever-present God. There's never an alarm that sounds with God. There's never anything. Those are just what we call anthropomorphisms. They give us the ability to understand God. But that's not the way God operates. There's not anything that he doesn't know, nothing that he is caught off guard by. He's never surprised or anything like that. But it looks that way from our side of things, doesn't it? Have you ever heard somebody say after a particularly good church service, oh boy, God really showed up. You know, the implication of that is there were other Sundays that God didn't bother to come to church. And we know that's not true. We know that that is not accurate. But to us, that's the way it looks. God showed up. God visibly did something in this situation. And we can go back and look through history, and there were times when uh, well, let me back up. Sometimes I think we get the idea that when in Bible times, if we just lived back then, it would have been just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Sometimes when you sit and you read a passage of Scripture, it seems that way. Until you stop and remember that in those pages, you may have just read a couple of pages and uh, you saw the miracles, and yet those two pages may have covered three or four hundred years may have covered several generations, right? You think about God delivering Israel from Egypt. Well, after 400 years of slavery, he delivered them from Egypt. You think about John the Baptist coming on the scene and preaching and all of the people being baptized. Yeah, but that's after 400 years of silence from the closing of the book of Malachi. I mean, these kind of things did not just happen over and over and over as an everyday experience. In fact, those times when you see, even in the book of Acts and other places where there were miracles and, boy, God was really working, that those were spaced out, there was a longer period of time between them, or if there was a cluster, that was a short thing for a purpose, but it wasn't an everyday type thing for centuries and centuries. Very limited, very focused time there. And so it looks like that maybe for 400 years, God just wouldn't do anything. Well, the scripture also teaches us, Jesus said it himself, he said, God is always at work. 
we may not be able to see it. We may not be able to understand it. We may be even frustrated. We may be angry. We may be disappointed. We may have our faith severely challenged because God is not working in the way that we want Him to work and according to the timetable that we wish that He would work. But trust me, He's always working, always working. He never sleeps or slumbers, but there are those times when it seems like all of a sudden God is like a mighty man waking up and running into the fray of the battle. So that's why I said point number one, I want my children to see the visible work of God. I hope my children and my grandchildren don't have to be in the 400 years of silence. I hope that they, and metaphorically speaking, I hope that they don't have to be in that. I hope they're in the part where they can see God in His power and in His greatness working in mighty and glorious ways. I'm praying that they will see revival. In fact, I wouldn't mind getting on, in on that myself, would you? Secondly, I want us to pray that the enemy's work loses its favor. The reason I say that is because the uh, next verse says that, um, and he beat back his enemies and he put them to, I like this, perpetual, perpetual, perpetual reproach. There are times that we have seen things come in fashion and out of fashion. Some of you can remember when um, the thoughts of uh, transgender uh, things, you, you, you would say, that'll never happen, not in, not in my lifetime. Well, it has. And there was a time when that was really out of fashion, and now it's in fashion. There were a lot of things that are going on right now that you thought 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years ago, for some of you, that that would never, ever happen. I'll never see that happen. But things have changed rapidly, haven't they? And some of you remember the time when uh, schools would call the church and say, we're planning this event, we're planning this social event. Does the church have anything going on? We don't want a conflict with that. Boy, those days are long, long gone. Those days are probably back before I was born. There were times when uh, my mother talked about learning the Ten Commandments in school. Can you imagine how that would fry the ACLU now? Ten Commandments would hang in the schools and uh, students could read them. Can you imagine? But now it's gone the other way. And it seems like everything the devil has in his agenda, everything that is uh, so perverse and things that are just unthinkable are in fashion, aren't they? And we're bombarded by those things. You can't even watch the news. You can't watch a television program. You can't be on social media. And you can't um, watch a movie where these things have to be introduced and almost crammed down our throats, right? Well, I'm praying that my children will live to see a day when the enemy, that his works, his ideas, and all of that, where they go out of fashion, they lose their favor that they're beat back and they are perpetually reproached. Did you catch that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If the things that the enemy loves and the things that are abhorrent to God, that, uh, you know, they would be clearly seen and that the enemy would go out of fashion and the things of God would once again find favor. 
Well, has that happened before? Yeah, there have been uh, more than one great awakening that has happened here in the United States. There's been a reformation that took place with Martin Luther and John Calvin and those people. And you can go back and you see that in the Old Testament even. There were times when Israel would be far from God and they would be worshiping idols in the high places. And then they would turn to the Lord and God would, it said sometimes he visited his people, right? And uh, that's just, uh, again, an anthropomorphism for telling us that God showed up. He was always there, of course, and always working, but now they could see it. And then all of a sudden, idolatry wasn't so cool. Then immorality wasn't quite so cool. They wanted to live and they wanted to work uh, in the favor of God and in the blessing of God and according to the word of God. You read about that in uh, the book of Nehemiah, that they had a revival and uh, they stood and the people listened to <clears throat> the law of God. Remember that? How long would that take? But they were hungry for it. And it was in favor at that particular time. And they didn't want anything else. Boy, I would love for my children to experience that. I would love for our culture to experience that to where there's a revival, where there's a renewal, where there's a revitalization of churches, where there's a renaissance of the gospel and the power of God and morality and all of those kind of things. Thirdly, I would pray for my children that they would have true worship restored. Uh, these verses tell us about the time when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And in Shiloh, it was overseen by the tribe. It was in the land of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was uh, out of the tribe of Joseph. You remember all of Jacob's sons. Each one of them had a tribe named after them. But there is no actual tribe of Joseph because the tribe of Joseph was two half-tribes named after his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were prestigious tribes. And during this time, the tribe of Judah was not all that well thought of. And yet the Bible says what happened. God moved the center of worship from uh, Shiloh, and he moved it into the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah became the caretaker, the custodian of the tabernacle. And later, that's where the temple was built, in the tribe of Judah. In fact, David was from the tribe of Judah. The Lord Jesus Christ was from the tribe of Judah. And Judah became so prominent that when the nation split in a civil war, there were ten tribes that were the nation of Israel, and uh, there were two tribes that made up the nation of Judah. Judah became a nation. In fact... Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, the uh, uh, Jews are called the children of Israel, right? And they're called Hebrews. But then later in the New Testament, they're called Jews. What happened? That's short for the tribe of Judah. And they've been known, that, known as Jews ever since. That is a reference to the exaltation of the tribe of Judah. Well, that's what it's talking about here because it was God's intention that there would be true worship, not just superstition, not just ritual, not just going through the motions, but the true worship in his sanctuary that would extend to the heavens. And so whenever someone would go into the Holy of Holies there in that tabernacle or the temple there in Jerusalem, what happened? It had the attention of God Almighty in the heavenly sanctuary and in the heavenly Holy of Holies and uh, so that's what that is speaking of. I would love for my children to see a renewal of true worship. 
People that worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, like Jesus said, the Father is seeking. There's a lot of entrepreneurism in the churches going on today, and there's a lot of performance going on in churches today, and I don't mean to condemn all of it. I'm just simply saying that whether it is in a liberal church or in a Bible-believing conservative church, whether it's in a traditional church or a contemporary church, what have you, my prayer would be that God would so move that churches everywhere would be revived, that churches everywhere would come to know Jesus Christ and to proclaim His Word and to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit so that worship is not just going to watch uh, what someone does and hear what someone says, but it's a gathering of the people of God to lift up the name of Jesus and to magnify Him in a way that not only makes a difference for that service, but in a way that makes a difference in the way marriages are carried out, in the way that parental uh, responsibilities are done, in the fact that um, on the workplace and in our society and in our neighborhoods, everywhere the people of God are truly being salt and light and it's all being done for the glory of God. Wouldn't that be wonderful? There's a lot of sham, there are a lot of cults, there's a lot of twisting of the Word of God, there are a lot of shysters that do things just for money and they're peddling the Word of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see all of that fall into reproach, to see all of that fall away, and to see a resurgence of Bible-believing churches and Christians and other churches that maybe have strayed into things be brought back into the truth. That's what I'm praying for because that's what God did for the nation of Israel. And then the fourth thing is that I would pray for my children to see um, government become a blessing instead of a burden. And you notice that when you read down here in this last part of it, in verse 70, he chose David, his servant. Well, as we already said, David was the, uh, uh, the ultimate in a human leader, wasn't he? And you look and see the golden age of Israel under David and under his son Solomon, the golden age of Israel. It's never quite been what it was during those times. And that's what is going to be restored one day when the Lord Jesus, the son of David, sits on the throne of his father David. Isn't it interesting that when Joseph was questioning about his relationship with Mary because she was pregnant, the angel came and calls him Joseph, a son of David, because he was. He was a descendant of King David. And he tells him, and Mary is told as well, that Jesus is going to one day rule on the throne of his father David. That's an amazing thing. That's how well thought of David is among the Jews and even uh, in the heart of God. And so David is the one who is chosen here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our children would be able to see a day when an election happens in the United States of America and there's a clear-cut choice as to who would be the best leader? Not a guess, not a I think, not a uh, the lesser of two evils. You ever feel like that? Sometimes you look and you get ready to vote and you're not sure either one of them, if there are two, either one of them are really all that qualified. But you look and say, well, the lesser of two evils is what I'm going to vote for. I would pray that one of these days my children would have the opportunity of voting for someone 
that is truly going to be a man or woman, as the case may be, of God, knowing God and following God, moral, uh, all of those kind of things, having integrity. And you notice that not only is it mentioned in this uh, passage that David came, but he came up and he took him out of the sheepfolds. David wasn't somebody with a lot of money or fame or anything like that. But he had shepherded the sheep, his father's sheep, so faithfully that that carried over into his life as a king. Again, not perfectly, but for the most part. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had people leading us in Congress, uh, mayors, governors, presidents, people that sit on the courts, to have them be where they're common people who've lived like we do. They know what it is to earn a paycheck. They know what it is maybe to make a payroll. They, it, it influences everything that they do. That they've lived a life that is a more normal life, not a celebrity life or anything like that, just a normal life. They know what it is to work. They know what it is what working people are going through to remember that. You see, David, one of the things about him is he had a lot of compassion for the common people in his kingdom because that's where he came from. And so government under a man like David, brought about by the Lord, became a blessing, not a burden, not a byword, not something that was frustrating, a blessing. So would you join me in praying and thinking about what it would be like if our children were actually able to see these four things come about in our life. Let's pray together about that, okay? Father, as we think about our children and what we're leaving behind, it's always been my dream and my desire that things would be better and not worse. But it's not working out that way so far because we're not capable of producing anything like that. But Lord, it would be our desire that for this next generation that they might see you moving visibly and powerfully, that they might see the enemy and all of the junk and the lies and the perversion fall out of fashion. Lord, to see true worship restored, where it's not just a thing of pleasing people, but it really is honoring you and worshiping you in spirit and in truth and your gospel going forth unhindered and unvarnished. And we pray, Father, that also you would let them see that government could be a blessing and not just a burden or something that they ignore, but something that is exciting and fresh and filled with integrity and common sense, all for the glory of God because it is wrought by you. That's what my prayer is. That's what our prayer is. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Grant it, dear Lord. Amen and amen. Well, thank you for taking the time to watch this. We'll have one more message out of this next week. And I hope that it has been a blessing to you. And may the Lord bless you. You are loved and prayed for. And uh, thank you again for your support.